Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Welcome to the Successful Mind Podcast. I am absolutely honored. I cannot tell you how honored I am to have you both here uh, today as guests. And you're going to be really new to our listeners, which is fantastic. I love introducing them to really smart people. Um, if you would just give talk a little bit about where you came from, what you what actually you do. Sure. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Uh, saying what we do is, uh, I'm not convinced that we we even know, but I can tell you how we got where we are, and maybe your audience can deduce the rest. We are evolutionary biologists. Uh, we studied to do work in tropical biology, um, focusing on things like uh, behave the evolution of behavior, sexual selection. Uh, we went on to teach evolutionary biology at the Evergreen State College. We were there for 15 years. Heather was literally the college's most popular professor. I wasn't too far behind. And we had a wonderful community of students that we taught to think evolutionarily. Uh, In 2017, events at the college went insane. 50 students that I had never met showed up at my classroom and demanded my firing and my resignation over claims that I was a racist, which were not only not true, but were the opposite of true. Heather and I got uh, dragged into a very public fight at the college over diversity, equity, and inclusion measures, and the uh, the events of the week in which the, those protests began, they descended into riots. I was literally uh, hunted on the college campus. Students started to replace the police on campus, and uh, they were roving with weapons. They actually literally battered other students. Uh, and these events caused us to leave the college, which refused to restore a safe working environment. We uh, moved into the landscape of uh, public intellectuals, I guess you would say. We started giving public talks and we were invited all over the world to talk about evolutionary biology, to talk about um, the uh, supposed free speech crisis on college campuses, which we do not believe was a free speech crisis and it wasn't limited to college campuses, which the world now knows. It's a crisis. Oh, it's a crisis, but it's of a very different nature. And um, I initially started uh, the Dark Horse podcast at the point that uh, COVID descended on us. We uh, gathered up the materials from our studio, brought them to our home, built this and uh, began live streaming because as evolutionary biologists, we had a useful and rare tool to start analyzing how COVID works, what the epidemiology suggested, what the remedies potentially were, how people should behave to protect themselves. Um, That really caught on. I don't know how many, I guess we're 109 live streams in as of last Saturday. And so we are now in some sense uh, doing what we did in the college classroom and we're doing it now with a larger audience. Um, I guess I should probably also mention that we've just published a book, which became a New York Times bestseller almost instantly. Yeah, let me just add a few a, a few pieces in there, although obviously um, describing such a strange, a Byzantine path as that will take a little bit of time. So we will elide many details. <laughs> um, we, are, we have actually been friends since high school. Uh, oh, wow. we, we are married now and we uh, got together not too long after we've been friends for several years, but uh, we've been together <clears throat> both. Um, we, we've literally had the same job almost since um, since we got together. We were in college together and then in graduate school together. And then we got professorships at the same place and left those professorships in the same way at the same moment. Um, we have two teenage boys and uh, and we were in the process of showing them the world when when COVID shut down the ability to do that. Uh, one of the things that I had been doing um, as a professor for many years and Brett and I had begun to do just before uh, everything everything descended into chaos there was leading study abroad. And so we did, for instance, um, in a year-long program that we taught with students in the 2015-2016 academic year called Evolution and Ecology Across Latitudes. We spent a few weeks in domestic field trips in the Pacific Northwest where we live 
And then we spent 11 weeks traveling throughout Ecuador, going to the Amazon, going to the Andes, going to uh, the rainforest on the West Coast, to the Galapagos, exploring not just nature, but also culture, both modern and ancient. And, uh, you know, and, and revealing, thus revealing things both that are real about the world and also real about the brains and expectations and biases of all of us, including us and our sons who were with us and the students who we had handpicked for this trip, so that you know, that that of course is what education should be about. So we were we were exploring evolutionary truths, many of which we also explore in the book, and mm -hmm. also revealing sort of the humanity, uh, both current and historical, uh, that we are all part of. And um, I guess the the one remaining thing I would say is that um, the book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty First Century, which came out in September of this year, to um, to, to terrific reception uh, popularly in terms of the, the numbers sold and New York Times bestseller, <coughs> one of Amazon's top science picks for the year, um, but it's received almost no mainstream press, which is very much this situation that we experienced uh, when Evergreen descended, which is you know we as lifelong. Uh, liberals were suddenly personas, I guess, non grata, uh, among the very people whom we had thought we were part of. And that that is a very, unfortunately, accurate uh, representation of this moment in time, not just this, this, you know, these this 10 years, but including these yeah. two years uh, that we are now living through. I was I mean, I've been watching you since, Brett, since you were on Rogan the first time, absolutely fascinated by everything that you, that you were saying, watch your podcast almost from the, when you first started it, um, fell in love with the way that you explain your view of the world and how you see it through this evolutionary lens. I'm, I'm so fascinated by human behavior and where we come from and why we have developed in the way that we have. And from the perspective of the way that we're currently stuck in the road that we've seen to turn down, not just in the United States, but as a world, like it's, it's fascinating to me that we have all these other countries that are kind of taking this totalitarian turn um, in, in response to what it is that we're experiencing. But then to see, because I watched the videos of what happened to you uh, uh, at the school. I, I don't know if that was through Adam Carolla, the the movie that they made, maybe perhaps that was No Safe Spaces. Is that yep. the name of it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I saw that. And I was, I was just shocked at what happened. So I have a I have a, this question that has just been gnawing at me. How is it that all of these really what we would consider super intelligent individuals cannot see what you two see? I mean, because this, I mean, here's what I know. You do the research, you look at the hard facts, you're very, very cautious about the things that you claim. You, when you say you don't know, when, like if there's something you don't know, you say you don't know, or you're not sure. I mean, why is it that there's these people that, that are really fantastic and, and seem to have been well-respected that cannot see this? I mean, it's like they're stuck with a door closed on their mind. Well, the answer to that is actually simpler than you would think. Okay. It comes down to one arcane term, heuristics. And I don't want to paint too simple a picture of this. We all function by heuristics. As a matter of fact, we all function by heuristics almost all of the time. When you navigate around the room, your visual system makes all kinds of assumptions about what the objects are based on what things that cast light in the way that they do typically are, right? And we all are fascinated by optical illusions where somebody can place something on a razor's edge where it could be one of two things and your mm. mind flips back and forth trying to figure out which one it is. But the basic point is that's an indication that you've got heuristics in your mind that work great so you don't even notice that you're using them. And the problem is that heuristics are what we deploy in order to make the world tractable. And when they work, they're by far the best deal you could make. But when they fail, they fail spectacularly. And so the, the tension is between heuristics on the one hand, which are simplifying assumptions, and 
first principles, which is if you don't make any assumptions, how, what, where do you get if you calculate from what you can ascertain and you weight things correctly based on how certain you are of them? Now, the point is that's the right tool to use when things are very confusing. And what we have done, what we have innovated is a toolkit that lets you walk into, especially biological systems, but really uh, any uh, complex adaptive system and make sense of it. Can we make perfect sense? Of course not, but we can make enough sense to move cautiously through it. And what you're watching with all of these other intellectuals who are clearly failing at their job in this regard is that they don't have the toolkit to do it. And so what they're doing is resorting to heuristics that are leading them to see a very compelling but false picture. And in some sense, I wish there was some way to alert them, right? If, yes. if they were stuck in a dream, right? If they were dreaming and couldn't tell that they were dreaming, there might, you know, there are things you can do. You can look at a clock and a clock in your dream doesn't make any sense. And you can realize, ah, that's why I'm not perceiving things in a way that makes sense. But they don't seem to be noticing the things about their situation that should be telling them that, you know what, this isn't the moment for, for heuristics. It's the moment for one of two things. Either you need to go from first principles if you have the toolkit to do it, or you need to step aside and get on the sidelines because you don't have a toolkit that will work for this confusing situation. And I, I really think that's where we are. And I actually find an easy way to just tie that into the book, if I may, which is you yes. know, bring up heuristics, uh, which are simple over simplified rules that work in most situations, but of course there will be situations in which they don't work. And uh, you, you raise optical illusions as an example of when you exp experience conditions in which your heuristics have failed you. And when the stakes are low, we find that fascinating, right? When it's just about, you know, is it an old lady or a young woman sort of optical illusions, right? Um, but I'm reminded, and it's, it turns out, I just looked it up, the very beginning of the third chapter of our book, we bring up the it's called the Muller liar illusion in which you have a, a straight line with arrow points going either, you know, out from that, from that line or, or in like, so it looks like a normal arrow. It looks like an inverted arrow and uh, people like us, like the three of us and presumably the vast majority, if not all of your audience who were raised in the weird world, you know, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, yeah. um, regardless of what our socioeconomic status has been raised, you know, any of the other demographic factors, but just the, the actual environment in which we're raised tend to be uh, when we are when we are shown two lines of equal length with arrows that either go in the right way or the wrong way on that on that bar, we tend not to be able to see that those are the same length lines. This is a you know, trivial example of an optical illusion to which we are um, we are susceptible. But people not raised in the weird world, people not raised in um, the environment in which we are all swimming in, aren't confused by this. Now, is this a, you know, what what can we make of that? Is there anything really, really important to be made about, oh, well, they aren't susceptible to this particular illusion? Not necessarily, but what it points out is how much the rubrics we have, the heuristics, the metrics, there are lots of, you know, all of these mean slightly different things. Um, but those things that we have in our heads that are dictating simple rules about what to do are often um, so fundamental to the environment in which we've been raised and the environment in which we found ourselves that even we can't see them. So with regard to weird world optical illusions versus non-weird world, oh, that's not an optical illusion, they're not susceptible to that. Um, we now know at least one of these, but there will be many of these. And even among a group of apparently like-minded people who can see some of the ways in which, for instance, media manipulates or the world is not treating us right. Those people who come, you know, when, when two groups of people come down opposite sides of the issue, sometimes it's just a legitimate disagreement. Sometimes though, the two groups are just standing in a different place. And it's a question of, of you know, seeing, seeing the world through the eyes of the other, which is very, very hard. Yeah, I would uh, just uh, realize we're going on and on about this one thing, but it's really, you've, you found a, a fascinating and important topic. Yeah. Um, in some sense, you can watch this take place in real time. Take us out of the equation for the moment. And uh, some of your audience may have seen Sam Harris go after heterodox thinkers about 
COVID and its treatment. Yes. And in doing so, he has actually literally dismissed some of the top doctors in the world, some of the most accomplished clinicians, people who literally save lives for a living and do it daily. He has dismissed them as quite possibly schizophrenic. Now, the obvious thing that has happened here is that somebody who is not a doctor has never presumably saved a life, at least in any medical situation, has effectively walked into a medical environment and imagined that his toolkit for making sense is paramount and that those whose toolkit has led them to see something very different must be in error in some massive way. And it's obvious that if you, you know, if you're in the ICU and you've got an ICU doctor on the one hand and somebody who's just come in as a patient and they're both pronouncing what should be done for this person on the gurney, right? It's not clear that the ICU doc will be right. But if you had to bet on one toolkit or the other, the ICU doc is likely to have more insight into the medical misfortune of the person on the gurney than the philosopher. And so um, the, the point is really knowing when to turn off your heuristics and knowing when to default to somebody else's toolkit because it actually applies. So this is my question. So I, yeah, I've heard Sam say that. I've wa- I listened to uh, his last podcast uh, with a guest, and and I was kind of horrified. I mean, he even says that what both of you are doing is dangerous, which I completely disagree with. And as I told you before we came onto the podcast, how this helped my daughter. I mean, it was a it was an amazing thing that I learned. But aren't these people scientists? And and maybe I'm wrong because I am not an educate, formally educated man. I'm more of an autodidact. But don't they teach scientists how to not get stuck in that kind of thinking? Isn't science based on the idea of challenging the status quo and letting the data prove what the answer is or what the or what the truth is or what we're seeing? Well, this is is exactly what science is supposed to be. So let's put let's put any of the famous people out of the equation for the moment and talk okay. about the, you know, the vast, the numbers of people uh, who are practicing doctors and scientists um, who are simply accepting what is being told them. Um, there is, you know, there is one solution to a, a problem and that is the only solution you are allowed. And if you don't accept that solution, then we won't treat you with any of the other things with which actually we have very much available to treat you. That is absolutely an an unscientific, in fact, an anti-scientific approach. And part of what we came to understand, um, really, uh, starting in college, um, but certainly, you know, through grad school and as professors, wherein we had some excellent professors and we had a ton of extraordinary students. Um, And our students were not elite students, by and large. These were students um, who, you know, had these these were many many of our students were on Pell grants. They had taken many years off. They already had families raised. You know they were veterans. Um, you know this was a, an actually diverse group of students, and they were extraordinary thinkers. I think in part because almost all of our classrooms had people who hadn't just been through the K through 12 system, done well, learned how to check boxes, and learn what it is that you do to get to the next hoop through which you will jump. Right, and we, those students, our classrooms were filled with people who were eager for challenge, to be told when they were wrong, to be told when we were wrong, right? To, you know, to have us come back to them. And it was appalling how rare it was clear that was, not just in their other classrooms, but uh, among faculty, certainly more widely than the particular school at which we were teaching. And, um, you know, is it easier to teach from a textbook as if science is linear, the facts are known, we're just discovering little things now that add to what we already know? Yeah, that's easier. Is it the way that we are going to actually advance the ball and help people and make progress? No, it's not. And it's anti-scientific. I want to go back and uh, uh, address some of the things in how you set up the question. Because I think it's, it's really significant. One, you said that um, Sam had described what we do as dangerous. Correct. There's no argument about this. It's dangerous. Our point is that what's more dangerous is not doing it, right? People are dying either way. And the question is, what is the best sense we can make of the evidence, which is not complete, that we have? And what does it suggest about the course of action we should take? And the fact is, this is how adults behave. 
right? When you go to a doctor with a serious condition, you are putting your, your life in that doctor's hands. And you are effectively saying, I want you to take what you understand about medicine, and I want you to give me the best shot at the highest quality life that I can have going forward. And doctor, you may kill me in that process. I know it. But what I want is the best shot, right? What right. we are trying to do is give people the best shot in this very confusing, chaotic, polluted environment without claiming to be medical doctors right we're not medical doctors but the point is there is a toolkit that allows you to detect who's lying to you and then the question is why are they lying to you are they lying to you for your own good right are they telling you you can jump that gap you'll make it over here when really you don't have another choice and nobody knows if you can jump the gap you know that's a kind of a lie we can understand or are they lying to you because somebody's making a profit at your expense you want to be able to detect the difference between those two things so here's what we are really disagreeing about it is true that science is supposed to teach you to question essentially everything, right? There's nothing beyond question in science. Sometimes it's not profitable because things are so well settled. But when things are not perfectly well settled, it is often profitable to push back on things that most people accept even. And that is a celebrated idea in the scientific community, yes? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Okay, but okay. But people get trained out of it. The modern environment, the economics of the modern environment train people out of this, even if children are born into it. Children question things incessantly and they ask some silly questions, but they also ask some very good questions. And the point is, as you grow older in one of these fields, you get less and less prone to do that unless you have really good mentoring or you're broken in a particular way and you don't get the memo that you're supposed to stop asking the awkward questions that your field can't answer and get on to something productive. But Here's the real question at the heart of why the scientists that we are listening to aren't doing this. There's a time for it, and there's a time not to do it. And this is actually true, right? Imagine that we are at war with a great evil, Nazis, for example, right? Imagine you were on the battlefield and you're fighting Nazis, and somebody in your platoon is obsessed with lichen, right? And they keep wandering out into the battlefield finding the most amazing lichen, really new to science, interesting <laughs> stuff, right? Aren't scientists supposed to find new interesting stuff? Well, but that son of a bitch needs to stop doing that because he's putting the platoon in danger, right? And so the point enough is- Enough with the lichen, Bob. Enough with the yeah. lichen, Bob. Or, you know, look, either you're going to get us killed or we're going to have to do something about you and your fascination with lichen because this yeah. isn't the moment, right? So the question really, the thing that divides us is- is this that moment where we are supposed to put our toolkit aside and not deploy it because the public health authorities basically know what they're doing? And if we follow their advice, we will all be collectively better off. And if we don't follow their advice, we will fall into all of these game theoretic traps, collective action problems where we all need to do something like get vaccinated. And those who talk about, hey, these vaccines aren't quite as safe as we've been led to imagine are going to cause lots of people not to do it. And maybe the pandemic continues because of that. That's the picture that we are having painted for us. And what we're saying is, no, that doesn't add up. Here's how you know. And once you realize that the picture that's being painted doesn't add up and that people are pretending we have a collective action problem that is not manifest in the evidence, right? That, you know, I mean, look, do we have a collective action pattern where if we vaccinate everybody, uh, collective action problem, where if we vaccinate everybody, the pandemic goes away and we can all get back to normal life? Gibraltar says no, right? Right. Israel strongly suggests no. And the point is, you have to notice that and you have to say, well, okay, if Gibraltar and Israel are suggesting something. and Uta just, just to be clear, if the countries that are most highly vaccinated and that did so with the greatest rapidity, which would be necessary, which everyone agrees would have been necessary with effective non-leaky vaccines to fix this, if even those countries with the most highly vaccinated, most rapidly vaccinated populations actually have growing caseloads of COVID, then this won't solve the problem we are being told it will solve. Right. And so then the question is, well, then what the hell do you do? Well, you, what you could do is you could go back to some of the people who's told you this wasn't going to work and you could say, what, you know, I don't care what mechanism they used to get where they were going. Anybody who has a track record of predicting what was going to happen that beat the public health authorities is worth checking in with. Some of them may have gotten lucky four times in a row. It's unlikely, but it could happen, right? Sure. But others have something that they are doing that others are not. And the question is, you know, 
maybe we should be talking to Luigi Warren and Robert Malone and Pierre Corey and Garrett Vanden Bosch and Bretton Heather and other people who have correctly predicted things because maybe they're doing something that works. And frankly, the, the bitter pill at the end of all of this is that maybe it's not as difficult as people are making it out to be, right? They're, they're telling you, this is too hard for you to figure it out. You yes. have to listen to us because we know. And the answer is those of you who keep telling us that you know, you botched it one end to the other. And those people who didn't claim to know and have made mistakes and owned up to them and, you know, built their understanding step by step in public have actually done quite a bit better. And didn't Dr. Corey talk to the Senate about that? Yep. And uh, his testimony was removed from YouTube. Yeah, indeed. I don't remember if it was and, and, Senate, but yeah. And McCullough's was all, also yes. from what I heard, right? It was, it was, it was removed. I so even, that's right. So part of what I'm trying to understand is, is, again, there's this whole thing about it's not just the United States that's doing this. There are other countries that are doing this. And, and, and kind of like how I kind of wrap this into your book <laughs> is what caused human beings to develop the way that we did to get to where we are currently? Um, you know, you, you talk about the evolutionary toolkit you talk about. I, I loved when you talked about your students would come to you with problems and you were able to give them solutions as how to think. What fascinates me though, is that we have moved in an extraordinary way in, in the social evolution of the world. And here we are at this place where not only are we not thinking, but everybody seems to be turning in this very strange direction of denial about what's happening. And then there's this idea of dealing with it from a totalitarian perspective. And I'm, and my question is, is there something in our fundamental way that we're thinking that's causing us to make that turn? Because it's really kind of crazy to think that everybody's in on some big conspiracy to do this, but you do start to think that when you see everything going in that direction. Well, I've become fascinated with the question of what it looks like on the ground as things start to go south, right? As, and which, which as you just directly alluded to, it looks like that's what's happening, right? It feels yeah. very much every, ever more with every passing week, like in many countries of the West, at least, um, Australia and New Zealand seeming to lead the way, Canada and the UK, not too far behind the U S not too far behind yeah. uh, them. Um, that we are indeed marching into uh, a historical moment for which there is precedent. And there is no exact precedent, of course, because um, history does not actually precisely repeat itself. Um, but, you know, what, how do those people who accept it and turn a blind eye or actually are blind to it uh, end up going along with it, which is what is necessary for it to happen? It's not, it's not conspiracy, right? It's, you know, there, there may be conspiracy, but it's not that the majority are in on the conspiracy. There is a, um, you know, historically, those who were in the minority yelling about a danger that most people couldn't see either proved to be right and lived to write the histories, but then the people reading those histories all imagined that they were on the side of right because you don't see yourself as the villains in those stories when you read them. Yeah. What is hard to, to get from the history is how the vast majority of people just went along with it because they just want to live their lives. Because if you've, if you've complied, if you've complied and you therefore haven't had many of your freedoms directly impacted, although frankly, in the U.S., in the Pacific Northwest where we are, it's been two years of you cannot live a day without knowing that there is a problem, even in the middle of the summer of 2021, when very briefly there was a moment when we weren't forced to wear masks inside. Um, it, still, there, you know, there has been nothing that looked normal for almost two years now. People who are not directly affected can simply go along because that is what historically was most likely to allow them to survive. Yeah, I think Heather alludes to the right point, which is that our mental architecture is built for a purpose. We know what the purpose is. The purpose is to get your genes as lodged deeply into the future as you can. And that has nothing to do 
Well, it can have something to do with being morally right, but it does not inherently have to do with being morally right. And there are times when the advantage comes from being morally wrong and people will rationalize it. I, I happen to run across a clip of Jordan Peterson from, I don't know, must be four or five years ago at least. And it's a very poignant clip. He reaches a conclusion, something uh, that we used to teach, but he reaches it in a way that's um, more pointed than we would have said it. And his basic point is um, you look back at history and you imagine that you would have been Schindler, but actually you're the Nazi. Right? Yes. And he, the clip ends with him saying, not only might you have gone along with this, you might have participated in it and you might have liked it. Right. Yeah. Now, the key That's message terrifying. here, yeah. well, it is terrifying, but here's the thing. Here's what's more terrifying. Most people don't understand what that means. They never get to the point of understanding the point. And the thing is, what's downstream, what is exactly one step after realizing the truth in that statement is, what do I have to do so that I cannot be the Nazi? Right? That's the question. It is in us. Why is it in us? Because ancestors have gotten themselves into the future by behaving that way, right? If I don't want to have that thing take over me at some moment, I have to be aware that that's there as a latent possibility. I have to be aware of what triggers it. And then when that thing comes down the pike, I have to say, absolutely not. I will not, I will not play that role in history. In fact, I will die first right? Mm -hmm, I sure. would much rather not survive than play that role in history. Now, maybe not everybody would say that, but if you're, if you're somebody who at least says, yeah, all right, that far, I'd rather not find that I've been the Nazi, right? Then you can recognize that there are patterns. If there are cognitive patterns that get triggered by certain events in history, then the point is, well, that's studyable like any other pattern. And what we can see now, what we're actually finding in heterodox podcast space, uh, maybe more than anywhere else, is a discussion of Rene Girard and his theory of scapegoating. We're finding a discussion of mass formation, mass psychosis. We are learning what these patterns are. We are learning that they are predicated on fear. What I think we haven't learned yet is that something on the other side has understood that the key to getting people to behave this way is not letting them know how many there are who would resist, right? We do not see, if we do not go looking for it in the U.S., we do not see evidence of these massive protests that we are seeing around the world. People are standing up in absolutely gigantic yes. numbers, right? These are not crazy people who have a superstitious resistance to vaccines. These are people who understand that tyranny is doing something familiar and it's doing it at a scale we've never seen before and they are standing up. And so if we understood, hey, I, I should be standing up. And not only that, if I stand up, I'm joining millions, right? That's a very different scenario than I need to stand up and I'm going to be alone. So something is gaming our perception so we don't understand how, how many of us there are. Um, so so let me, can I just ask a quick question? So the other countries that you're talking about that are standing up in protest, were they experiencing the ramifications of cancel culture over the last few years like the United States was? Uh, yes and no. They were certainly seeing hints of it. And in fact, it was incoherent in some regards, right? We saw people effectively protesting, you know, the echoes of Jim Crow in Britain where Jim Crow wasn't. And so really? something about our environment and the way we now interact across borders on some nebulous thing called the internet has caused us to have a collective consciousness that may not even have anything to do with what's going on locally. And in fact, I think the very same thing happened. If you look at the famous footage of Nicholas Christakis being challenged at Yale, right? You have some of the most privileged people on earth shouting at him about how they're being oppressed. And it's, you know, it, it takes some unpacking to figure out how that could possibly make sense. Um, and so anyway, our consciousness is about what we perceive, which is now increasingly non-local. Yeah, because I was wondering, it's, it, that is an interesting phenomena. And yet, were we pre-prepared 
to not stand up by having people be so afraid of saying and being canceled for like the last four or five years, even pre-Trump, uh, this was taking place and with the U2, with the Me Too movement. And, and you, you saw people just like, it is safer to just shut up and not say anything. But then this big thing comes and nobody's doing anything, which was like, why is that not happening? Well, you also, I'm reminded of the Ash experiment, Solomon Ash in the 1950s, early 60s, who uh, in an effort to understand how much people comply with social pressure around them, put three or four or five Confederates in a room along with the person who was being experimented on and was shown, again, it's about lines, <laughs> um, you know, shown lines of different lengths and was asked which of these lines is shorter than the other. And all of the Confederates, which the person being experimented on didn't know were Confederates of the experimenter, uh, would give the wrong answer. This is a blatantly simple factual question. Which line is longer, A or B? Line A is longer. The three people in the room who go first, who are all in on the experiment, say line B is longer. The person who's actually being experimented on looks around, looks at the truth, looks at the people in the room, and more often than not, more people than not comply with the false answer, at least some of the time. The vast majority of people do not comply with a falsehood all of the time, but the vast majority of people comply some of the time. Hmm. And so in this, and, and this is a result that has been uh, repeated many, many times since. This is, this is not one of these non-replicable results out of psychology, uh, but it reveals in it, I think actually a little bit of hope which is that it is actually the rare human being that will comply all the time with something in front of them that is blatantly false. And so training yourself, training yourself to be in situations in which there is social pressure just to go along. And, you know, used to be when, I, you know, we're all about the same age. When we were growing up, the thing that I remember being talked about was if someone tells a racist joke in your presence, you don't laugh. And right. in fact, you say, actually, dude, it's not funny. Right. And is it, you know, if if everyone around you is laughing, is that uncomfortable? Yes, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, stakes have gotten a lot higher. And in fact, it's become a lot more difficult to know in many regards whether or not the thing that is being told to you is actually morally wrong in the case of a racist joke or factually wrong in the case of, uh, you know, if everyone gets vaccinated, we can end this pandemic tomorrow. That, you know, neither of those things is, is true, is, is right is you know, morally right or actually true, uh, but it's hard to parse in a world in which, you know, this is, this is not the world in which we came of age. And in, indeed, one of the points in the book is no one is living in the world in which they were born even. No one is living, no one starts college uh, in the world in which they started high school at this point. The rate of change itself is outpacing our ability to keep up and with it comes our ability to understand what is true. Yeah, and I love you that you pointed that out in the book that we can't keep up with the rate of change. What happens to us from an evolutionary perspective if we can't keep up with the rate of change? How does the intelligence of evolution adapt to that? It doesn't. We perish, and that's that's the point, really. That's what I was afraid. <laughs> um, no, the, the, look, you know what happens if you take a fish out of the conditions to which it is adapted. You know, it does get a bit of time to flop around in the bottom of the boat, but it dies. And the point is, our toolkit gives us a certain amount of leeway to find our way out of this predicament. But but the clock is ticking, and you can tell, right? The number of independent things that could take out humanity is growing. I won't say yearly, but certainly by the decade, we are adding things to the list of perils that could take us out that didn't exist before. That cannot continue, or some roll of the dice somewhere is going to trigger one of these things to take us out. We have to not only recognize the individual threats, but we have to recognize the thing that is generating them. And the thing that is generating them is a pathological relationship with progress. And I'm not denying that progress exists, that it is desirable. It absolutely is. But if you pursue it as a good in and of itself, and you do so in the naive way that, uh, well, frequently it's progressives and liberals that, that have this error, but if you pursue it as if unintended consequences uh, are unlikely unless proven otherwise, then you will 
ultimately do yourself in. And, and that's the trajectory we're on. But the good news is that the thing that makes human beings special is a toolkit that A, can recognize such peril and B, knows how to bootstrap its way out. We got ourselves into this through an evolutionary process. We can get ourselves out through an evolutionary process. And really, that's what we should do. And uh, the irony is, were we to do it, we would live in a very vibrant world where there would be lots of meaning and people would have tremendously important things to do with their lives rather than, you know, doom scroll on the internet or, you know, yeah. sit home and, uh, you know, resent the fact that there are no good jobs. Have Americans been, specifically Americans, been away from any substantial threat too long to to have that um, internal uh, um, signal go off, so to speak? Like, this is the difference between real danger and not real danger. Because, I mean, it, unless you experienced um, a real threat to our freedom, to our society the way that it is, there's all these false flags that come up over the years. Now, even with, even with Afghanistan, like if you weren't directly involved in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, most people couldn't even tell you what was going on while we were in this horrendous war for so long. Do we numb out to it to the point where it's like, hey, it's like the boy cried wolf. Now there's a real wolf, right? You people need to wake up. Yeah, and it's fractal, right? We we've we we as a society, and like you know, this has been good for us with the big caveat that maybe we need real challenge that actually puts um, our safety at risk more often. Um, but that has allowed that has allowed the U.S. to become, at least until recently, the most booming economy in the world. Right. Uh, but you take it down to the level of the individual. And I think it is, is fractal all the way down. And we are living in a moment when uh, the children who are now becoming adults have been protected from all insult and injury. And wait, what did she say? She wants the children to be insulted and injured. Um, kind of. Now, I wouldn't say it that way. And that is how the detractors will say it. But children need to be exposed to risk. And perhaps what you are saying is societies need to be exposed to risk, real risk, in order not just to calibrate, but actually to regain an understanding of what it's for and what to do and to yeah. know not only what to do in an emergency, but how you yourself will behave when one comes. Because it's too easy to imagine ourselves as the heroes of the stories if we've never actually been tried. Exactly. Yeah, we. I think we are making a mistake of not... Um, not understanding that society is a an analog of a person and a person without meaningful work and i don't mean work like a job but some meaningful goal that is difficult to attain but reasonable to pursue right if you don't have that then you are listless and you get pulled into all kinds of other things um, because they have no competitor and at some level we have been at our best when we have had an important project that we all agreed on, right? Going to the moon was a great idea. I'm not even sure I know why, right? It may be that the most important thing that happened in the going to the moon was that there was a moment at which representatives of our species looked back at the earth and it changed them. And they came back and spent the rest of their lives trying to explain what they had seen and frankly failing. But a lot of us got it. You saw something you can't now explain to us that we urgently need to know. Now it's been a very long time, right? So right. Well, and that's that, faded. I mean, the iconic photograph with which we are all familiar, we were we were babies when that happened and you were mm -hmm. just a little bit older than that. Um, that reveals in a visceral visual way, our shared fate. And this concept of shared fate is absolutely integral to an evolutionary understanding of, of anything really, you know, what is it Brett, Brett mentioned in introducing us um, that some of our interests back in grad school for decades now has been, have been the evolution of social systems, the evolution of sociality. And you know how it's one thing to be, uh, to be you know born alone and live a solitary life and come together to mate and then you know and die alone. And there are you know, vast majority of organisms on the planet do that. Um, but we are we are in fact not alone um, as a species, uh, nor are we alone as individuals in being social, having shared fate, 
to varying degrees. And the degree to which we can understand that or remind each other that we are all in this together, as opposed to falling prey to a more basal, more basic, less enlightened version, which is to say tribal, in-group, out-group, vaccinated, unvaccinated, okay, not okay, clean and worthy of your attention and healthcare, dirty and not worthy of your attention or healthcare, no. We're better, we can be better than that. And obviously we're not always better than that. And all of us will fall prey to that sometimes, but we all need to become better than that right now and remember our shared fate. How can specifically, how can your book help people do that or learn to do that? Well, we set up the book um, according to a metaphor that we used with students for for years. And the idea was that, almost all creatures that navigate visually at least will have a bias towards day or night because it's very difficult to build an eye that's really good at both. So um, we happen to be diurnal creatures, which means that at night we're more a hazard to ourselves than we are a help if we try to go out and hunt and gather and do the things that, that ancient humans did. So instead of doing that, we gather and at the beginning of the night, we gather around the campfire. And the point is you have, as a human being, the most marvelous computing apparatus that the known universe has ever produced. And not only is it the most capable computer in the known universe, but it has a very special property, which is that it can plug in with other similar but not the same type of computer, and it can parallel process problems. And so the idea is that campfires throughout human history and even before have been a place where hominids have gathered to solve problems that they will profit if they can find the answer to um, by parallel processing those problems, effectively talking to each other, saying, here's what I saw, here's what I think it means. No, 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 that's not what it means because here's this other observation that I made. That kind of back and forth around the campfire allows us to figure out how to do things that would be good for us to do that that our ancestors knew nothing about. And that is exactly where we are. This process of consciousness that unfolds around a campfire is the process that is supposed to address novel hazards. We are facing the mother of all novel hazards. It is a time for the greatest collective consciousness the world has ever seen to bootstrap our way out and to find safe harbor. And you know, at some level, the, the book is a model of that process. It is an invitation to a campfire. It lays out the problem of hypernovelty and the hazard that it poses to humanity and says the answer is clearly to navigate to somewhere better. We can't say where it is. We can't describe the system that we need, but we can say what it has to accomplish and we can bootstrap our way there. We can prototype our way there. And really uh, it is no simpler and no more complex than that. And um, if I may add, the focus of our conversation has been um, largely at the societal level. Yeah. And we, you know, the, the book is in some ways uh, the everything book and every single chapter in it could easily be a book of its own. And in fact, you know, each or both of us may do that at some point in the future. Um, but we talk, we, t- we have chapters on health and medicine and on food and on sleep and sex and gender and relationship and parenthood and childhood and school yeah, another system that is is deeply deeply messed up, um, mm-hmm. and various ways in which um, people have been adults and in which we need to become adults, and on society level problems. And so, you know, we walk through, I think, you know, all of the major concerns of most humans. And no, we don't do so uh, in a in a complete way because you can't, in a book of finite length, take on all of those topics and and yeah. do it completely. Um, but the. Uh, we we do so in part because there is an evolutionary approach to all of these all of these domains and also with each new domain that you are considering you know what should i eat why is my sleep disordered um why are my relationships uh, with my children not the way that i want them uh you know why why is school so bad um and by providing examples and you know, stories from our own experience and also stories from non-human animals uh, throughout the book, uh, we hope to basically empower the reader to learn how to use this evolutionary toolkit themselves so that they too can begin to use first principles to understand problems that uh, afflict them every day 
you know, what do I eat? How do I deal with hearing something that isn't right and uh, deciding whether or not to insert myself into a conversation and saying, actually, no, that's not right. You know, how, how, how can we develop both courage and, uh, and wisdom in our movements through the world? That's what we are hoping that the book helps people do. Oh, I think it totally does. I mean, I've always thought it's fascinating that we're the only species that doesn't question our own existence and and what we are and what is the evolutionary reason for the fact that not only do we do that, but the fact that we give meaning to everything, right? We're not, we're not, we didn't come into this world with a book that says, oh, here's what everything means. Here's the definitions and how to use them. We created that ourselves. And it seems to me like, and what excited me about your book was that it does do that on the individual level. And I see the world as something that has lost meaning, like, an, or, or at least put it down and questioned it to the, to the degree that we don't know what's important anymore as far as what do we give meaning to. And now we've gone into this chaotic idea of creating meaning around things that don't mean anything or have no significance whatsoever, and then take those things and make enormous problems out of them as a distraction for everybody's good time and intelligence. Um, so when I when I saw what you did with your book and the fact how many times you've talked about how it's helped your students, I was like, I think this is absolutely fantastic. So I mean. Congratulations with the book. I love it. It's, I, and I tell everybody that I come across, you've got to get this book. You really, you need something to jar your thinking beyond what it is that you're currently being exposed to. And I think it does a great job of that. Thank you. Thanks. We really appreciate that. And uh, we love the idea that we are standing at a metaphorical campfire and that people are arriving and, and uh, bringing things that yeah. uh, we wouldn't even know to ask about. Absolutely. Um, where can everybody get your book? Where's the best place? Because I know that you were running into some shortages and stuff because it was so popular, right? Yeah. The, from from day three after publication through about week four, it wasn't available on Amazon, which was um, which was upsetting. Um, but uh, it's it's widely available now. It's in the fifth or sixth printing, so there there are plenty of books out there now. And um, independent bookstores have it as well. So, you know, we always, it's obviously Amazon is easiest, but uh, we encourage people to, uh, to help out their local independent booksellers. And if they don't have it, order yes. it from them. And that might actually bring awareness uh, at the bookseller level as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, it really anywhere at this point and, you know, soon to be available in other languages as well. I saw I that. Congratulations on that. That's fantastic. I mean, that's amazing, right? I mean, it's gonna, we need more of these things to help change the world and give people something to grab onto as to what to think, because they just don't know where to go. They don't know what to think. Anyway, I want to thank you both. It has been an absolute honor. And thanks again for the information and all of the, all of the sound thinking that you're putting out in the world. I have personally benefited from it. My family has personally benefited from it. And I honestly thank you for it. Thank you. Thanks the, so much. The, the gratitude is very meaningful to us, and we are we are in turn grateful to you. It's Thank been you. a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.